we all have this innate ability to look at art and see what it is visually, figuratively representing. And we all know that behind there, there was a meaning, there was thoughts and emotions and a person's personal history that goes into that. You don't have to be an art critic or an expert in art history to, to know that. But I think it speaks to the curiosity in all of us to want to kind of go below and, and search out what the meaning is behind that. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printing, their Woodzilla presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible, whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist, still guaranteeing a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Gemma Tricky. We talk about growing up in a suburb of London in the late 90s, early 2000s music scene, working long hours in the TV industry right out of college, and how a desperate act to flee that job and to up as a custom curtain maker, being in love with art history, and being at the whims of the algorithmic gods as a contemporary artist. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get tricky with Gemma. Hi Gemma, how's it going? Hey Miranda. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really glad that we're going to have a chance to chat about you and your work. As I was saying off air a bit, I've admired your practice for some time and I'm really excited to hear the story behind it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the podcast, so it was a delight to be asked on. Oh, wonderful. Well, before we get into all my questions, would you let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Sure. My name is Gemma Tricky. I'm a relief print artist, uh, mainly working in line cut and woodcut, and a sprinkling of letterpress as well on top of that. Um, I'm self-taught at printmaking. I did. I actually went to art school about a hundred years ago <laughs> and studied fine art, but I've actually only been working in printmaking as a career for maybe about the last five years. So there was quite a big long gap between that. And I'm originally from London and now I operate out of a studio in Somerset, which for people that don't know that is in the West Country in England. Wonderful. I'm really excited to talk a little bit more about that journey. I know, as you said, you you took some time off between art school and and 
finding your your printmaking stride. And you said you are from London. Is that where you you grew up? Kind of. I was born in London and then we moved to it's pretty much still London, but it was kind of the suburban area outside of it. So it's kind of half in the countryside, half in the city, almost that sort of edgeland area. So yeah, yeah, it it was it was a while before I got back to the city proper. Totally. And then what role did art play in that part of your life? I know I think when people think of London, of course they think of, oh my gosh, the museums and the history and all of that. Was was that present for you in the suburbs? Were you in an arty family? Very much no. I, <laughs> my family, I'm kind of the black sheep of my family, I think, really. But I, I was always making things as I grew up. I was always drawing. I think my parents thought I was a little bit odd and didn't know where they got me from. But my my dad is a builder, and so there was quite a strong DIY ethic in our family. So that's always quite present in my adult life now. And yeah, I think it. We it, so he would always if if we needed a tool, he wouldn't go buy it. He would make it. Oh or wow! If I needed a desk to make some painting on or something he would make that for me rather than going out and buying it from the store so I grew up very much with that then did a lot of art at school and my parents were always kind of like well it's great that you do all this art stuff but don't you think you should do something sensible with your life (laughs) or have a backup that's a classic thing you hear isn't it have Have a a backup Mm-hmm. So yeah, and then I did some backup things like for my my GCSE exams that you take when you're about fifteen. So I did things like economics and stuff like that. Got terrible grades in all of them, but <laughs> art, drama, all of those kind of yeah. things. That was that was clearly where I was heading because I was okay at all of that, which yeah. was really great. And I could just it was the thing that really just absorbed me. So we in terms of London that wasn't really too present in my life although we lived on the outskirts not really having arty parents but there was quite a strong how do I say it it's there's there's there was like a strong ethic amongst myself and my friends of kind of do-it-yourself events there was quite a strong music scene back in the late 90s early 2000s of that sort of melodic punk rock hardcore so we'd all be hanging out listening to bands like the bouncing souls and operation ivy and no effects so it was that sort of punk rock ethic that made us a lot of us get together and make art events and put on music events maybe sometimes combine the two so we had a cool little scene going on in a town that is was not too far away from me called Watford which is one of the satellite towns outside of London so we would do a lot of our own stuff put on a lot of our own events and kind of kind of go against the flow because everything was getting a little bit slick with promotion and the the music back then was really super poppy and super slick so we kind of had a little kickback against that in putting on our own stuff making our own zines so I think that's where I got a real taste of 
of an art scene and actually being part of an art scene as well. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely I think we're probably of a of a similar generation and I I very much remember that aesthetic and that kind of zeitgeist of just shiny, perfect, poppy Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Jessica Simpson, just like oh, yeah. we're blonde. We have abs. All of our music sounds the same. <laughs> like it's just, and it just, it, it seemed very, very sterile and very constructed and mm-hmm. not something I ever connected with personally. And, and so finding a scene like you did that had like-minded people that sort of said, okay, this is what we're kind of being fed, but what if we created something that was very genuinely interesting to us? That sounds really rewarding for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. We we it was nice to actually take control of something and be able to put on our own events in our own way. So we did loads of things. We we did the uh, music events. Um and also we did a lot of uh art stuff around that. So we would say to people like on our mailing list or even just friends locally if you want to make some art, we're going to show it in this pub. There's going to be bands on. And it was cool because people could come and see someone's art that they made that they've never even thought about exhibiting. They, no, nobody was kind of in that arty world yet. Um, we didn't even think about the notion of, say, taking any commission like a gallery. But it just was not on our radar whatsoever. Mm. So the thing, it was kind of pure. Yeah, which I really liked. I really like all the good memories I have of that. Is that how kind of pure it was, and the effort we put in as well, purely because we loved it. We mm. did an event once, so we were a, a collective called DIY Womp, which stood for Do It Yourself Word of Mouth Promotions, which is a little bit of a mouthful now. I look back <laughs> on it now, but. But it worked. It was kind of punchy as well. And we had this cool like poster pop logo. And we did this event once where we had a gig on in the town centre. This is being suburbia was quite close to a lot of woodland and things like that. So we said to people, if you want to stay for the after party, then stick around. And we led these guys into the woods it sounds a bit sinister now but <laughs> we had gone there in the day previously and we'd lit everything up with fairy lights and glow sticks and we put signs up saying a little bit further nearly there and then when you got to this clearing in the woods we hung up all around just from the trees just like strung up on the trees uh, I was doing a lot of stencil art at the time um, so I had a few pieces up there and like, just loads of our friends had come together just to make this. Um, we, it kind of had an Alice in Wonderland theme the whole night. So it was really cool. And to see people stumble into this weird post-gig arty world, it was just the coolest thing in the world. And people were saying, like, I can't believe you've done this. I can't believe someone's set this up. And it, it just gave us this this real feeling of, how cool stuff can actually be and you don't have to wait for someone to put it on for you. Yeah. Oh, what a cool experience, especially to have in those formative years of really seeing, okay, this is something that I can manifest and this is something 
that is giving people a unique experience and the mm-hmm. real joy in that. That's yeah, really and cool. sort of the the power of collective as well, and and what they can do. And to this day, I'm endlessly fascinated with people that come together and do community projects and uh, make things as a team, which is kind of weird because I do work alone an awful lot, and I yeah. like I'm into. <laughs> But when people come together, I think that's you, there's a little bit of uh, magic dust on that, and it it just it is always kind of cool to see people's stuff mixing together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you mentioned in this experience, you mentioned zines and maybe posters and stencils, which of course is a kind of printmaking. Mm-hmm. Were you using print at this time at all to to create any of this? Was was printmaking mm-hmm. as a medium in your world? No, not at all. I found printmaking really early. Actually, I well, printmaking has been popping up in my life for years and years and years, and I've only done something about it in the last say five years. Like I said, I went to college. And what you have to do in the UK is before you go to university to do an honours degree, you have to get what's called a foundation course. So it's where you try out a lot of specialism. So you go to your college, you do your foundation course, and you'll try lots of things. You'll try graphic design and sculpture and model making and textiles. And during college, I had an absolute blast. And it, it's there when I first did some lino printing um, and I got my best mark in what I was doing with the lino printing, which was actually in the textiles unit and printing mm. onto fabric and paper and kind of layering it up as you would in textiles as well. And I kind of didn't really twig that that's what I really like to do. And I went on to do a degree in fine art instead, which I'm not, I think it's, it wasn't really the thing that I should have done. Hmm. I definitely didn't really take with the, the London universities are very conceptual and Um, uh I didn't really get on well with the probably the freedom that we were given actually and I actually liked photography so much at the time that that's what I wanted to do and the only way at that university that I could have done a lot of photography was to um, do a fine art degree so I think I was sort of trying to shoehorn all these things together mm-hmm. and I would go in every day for my fine art degree that I was completing all my briefs in photography and I would pass the printmaking department and even then I would my nose would be pressed against the window and I'd be (laughs) just beguiled by all this magic that was happening in there and I was thinking my god I really wish I could do this what are they doing that what is that what is that huge machine and I think I was just a bit of a little idiot at university. <laughs> I was just too young. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I was going. Yeah, so that sort of passed me by. So at all these times during my life, 
I was sort of skirting around the edges, making lots of stencils and layering them up and using spray cans. It's actually quite a similar process, really, mm-hmm. to printmaking. I was doing a lot of crafts while I was working with my hands as well, so which felt like a bit of a, a double life in a way because I'd learned to knit when I was quite young and quite keen on, on sewing as well. So by day, I was living this sort of punky lifestyle of making zines and stuff. But back then... There was no outlet for the knitters of the world, for instance. Uh-huh. So I would hide that part of me away and and be sitting there of an evening doing my sewing or my knitting. And so all of these things, working with my hands, working with things that weren't too far away from print, seeing a lot of printmaking in and around my environment. But it, it took quite a few years to actually get around to the printmaking in, mm. a, in and of itself. It's such an insane thing that we make children choose what to do with their lives. It's right. when you said you were just a little idiot in college, I had to laugh because I felt the exact same way. For me at the time, I was completely in love with dance, and all I did was dance when I wasn't in school and study dance. And it didn't occur to me that. I could have just gone and done that at school, that sort of thing. It's just, we just don't know anything. And yet we're making these decisions that lay the groundwork for the rest of our lives. But I think it's all good information in the end, right? Is that maybe if I had studied dance, I never would have found printmaking. You know what I mean? It's just all these kinds of things that that I do think that they're formative, even if they're not formative in the way that we would have wanted to have the intentionality of the formative nature so yeah yeah I mean I I worry that actually if I did go and do printmaking maybe I wouldn't have such a good time anyway just because of my university experience I found it quite hard going to university in the city people came in almost like for a day in the office and then went home. So there was none of that sort of student bonding that lifestyle Mm. that you would get nobody really lived on a campus I, I roomed with some guys that I actually knew. One I knew from school and college, and then one we met at college as well. So we had a house share together. So it, it was sort of, we were funneled down these, these routes. So no matter what the subject was, it's possible that it just wasn't for me. So mm-hmm. no regrets, really. And I got here in the end. And totally. I'm having an absolute blast doing it. So maybe it's just the right way around. Totally, totally. And so did you come to printmaking? Was this before or after your time in the TV industry? Oh, that was def- very much after, yeah. There was, yeah. There was no art really happening when I was working in TV. <laughs> Actually, that's a lie. There was a lot of uh, sewing and dressmaking and things. Mm. I always have to do something with my hands so watching tv or a movie or something is out of the question for me unless I have the secondary thing I have to even if it was like oh I don't know like making some knots in string I have to do something with my hands Mm. so I was always making stuff but yeah the it wasn't until I'd pretty much quit working in TV, which came along very soon after I finished university. And I very much got sucked into that world. But it was very much not creative as well. Mm. So I think 
it didn't really leave much time for thinking about what I wanted to do with art or what I wanted to say. And I had that creative outlet as it was. So then I actually ended up leaving my job and I became a curtain maker. Oh, really? Which is a change for sure. Uh huh. <laughs> I wanted to do something that was creative and working with my hands and working with something beautiful as well. And I had, I remember a time when I was sitting with my now husband and we were just thinking, what can I do? Because the TV industry, I worked in broadcast, so it was extremely non-creative, quite long shifts and a lot of just checking things, checking schedules and ticking boxes and things like that. Um, and I found that my focus just over the years was just going and I just could not, I, I think it was probably a, a, a short matter of time before I would have got the sack for something. I think I was really <laughs> just flying by the seat of my pants in the end because I just couldn't do my job properly. My focus wasn't there in the end. And I thought I need to get out and do something that, that makes me move for one because mm. I was just sitting down in a chair for 12 hour shifts and and something where I can create so we I, I remember we were sitting in my husband's studio and <laughs> we were putting notes up on the wall sticky notes of all the things that I could do so like yarn dyer I I could knit socks for a living I all these things were we were thinking of and we were just like this is not something you can just start doing and making money at. We mm. figured that actually something like being a curtain and blind maker was something that I potentially could make some money doing whilst doing something creative. So it was from the TV industry into the curtain making industry. And that was a terrible idea too. <laughs> because curtain makers make no money, which is the wrong thing. And it took me maybe a year or so to realize this. But in the meantime, I'd actually worked with so much beautiful fabric. And those feelings of just like at college with the textiles course, I was thinking, I want to make this. I want to do this. I don't, you make a curtain and you make 60 curtains and they get very samey. So it was kind of the same vibe of the, the, repetition day in day out I also hated going to people's homes and doing Mm. measure ups I felt very awkward doing that I felt really pressured so just kept noticing all these amazing prints that I was using from William Morris and Sanderson Mm. and thinking how do they do this and then eventually the printmaking thing came around and I started to block print my own material and boom then it was then I was off yeah. Yeah. I I can definitely say I think you're the only person who came to printmaking on the, the curtain maker to printmaking pipeline that I've spoken <laughs> to. <laughs> that's so that's so funny to me because I it it's never occurred to me to get custom curtains made that that was even a, a thing. 
that people right. can do and that they do do? Is it, is it sort of, is it, is it something rich people do? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of is actually in the, back in the olden days uh-huh. when like pre-internet. So I wasn't a curtain maker in these days, but um, when I was being um, trained, I was being trained on, on the principles of you are a high-end handmade curtain maker and you would sell the material. So you would make a markup on your material as well as your labor and your skills. Actually, now that doesn't happen because everyone buys material on the internet. Yeah. Everyone, the sort of handmade custom curtains now, I don't know, maybe it's more of a British thing as well. I'm mm-hmm. really not sure. Back in the 80s, there was such a trend for these, they were called swags and tails, these huge swathes of fabric that would hang down and make your curtains, make your windows really dark, actually. I hate yeah. that. <laughs> so you just like bind your windows up in all this material that costs thousands of pounds. So I think people were going to train as curtain makers based on this promise and finding that in the age of the internet, you would go to um, a, a shop you can find custom curtains, spokely measured up curtains on the internet now and prices are rock bottom. So right. I very quickly found I was just working seven days a week, all day, all weekend, all evening and actually just barely making enough to pay the bills. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't a good call. However, again, no regrets because it got me out of television Mm-hmm. And it got me doing something. It got me finally on the track. Yeah. <laughs> <It> finally got <laughs> me. <laughs> I could no longer ignore it. And yeah, and I sort of got over my fear and started printmaking. And yeah, I just haven't looked back. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so you talk about your work being inspired by William Morris, Aubrey Beardsley. And so you got that first sort of peak of that aesthetic through curtain life, if, mm-hmm. if I'm sort of hearing the story correctly. And and I I also love that look and that feeling. And you talk about old scientific reference diagrams and the weird creatures and that sort of thing. And I also am so connected to that look. I just, I really, really love it. And maybe my question is just, what do you think it is about about that feeling that at least it gives me and and maybe what it is about it that it connects with you? Because it's not really of our our past. It's not really nostalgic from, you know, being an 80s baby, right? Like it's it's (laughs) long before that. It was definitely long before that. Yeah, I think it does. It just harks back to something that we we obviously hold so dear. The the way that people used to make things, I think, mm. is really precious to people. So, looking at something like William Morris, if you ever see the way that he would make his repeat patterns, there was no tracing paper there was no photoshop mm-hmm. he everything was done very much by hand at great expense and if you made a mistake because all, all these things were uh, made out of wood the, the woodcuts to make the materials and the wood papers if you made a mistake on any of those it 
it, you're, you're toast. You have to start again. And I, I do think that there's a huge appreciation for that. Even if you don't quite know the work that went into something, mm-hmm. you can appreciate the sheer amount of detail and the beautiful colours that went into something like that. So I do think it sort of it touches something within us, a deep appreciation for those kind of heritage crafts, really. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's something to that that I've, you know, never been able to prove. I don't know how you go about proving it, but something about art in in general that people perceive more than they maybe think that they perceive about it, and they mm-hmm. connect with things that are really beautifully created as you say, even if they don't necessarily know the process. And it could be printmaking, it could be oil painting, it could be sculpture, but people have just a sense of of understanding that there was a human who really put a lot of effort and focus mm. and time and, and craft into something like this. And it, it comes through, I think. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. I, I think one of the things I'm really obsessed with in my work is this notion of hidden, the hidden thing or secrets and thing, And that doesn't even have to be something so blatantly obvious as something hidden in, in a box or something. Mm. But the, the history behind something or the meaning behind an artwork, we all have this innate ability to look at art and see what it is visually, figuratively representing. And we all know that behind there, there was a meaning, there was thoughts and emotions and a person's personal history that goes into that. You don't have to be an art critic or an expert in art history to to know that. But I think it speaks to the curiosity in all of us to want to kind of go below and, and search out what the meaning is behind that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think speaking of, as you speak to that, it, it makes me think about some of your images that have that little kind of pagan creature feeling to them <laughs> that I, I really love and, and almost like sort of secret ritual or, or something like right. that. I don't know. It, it has that, that hidden world feeling in your compositions where it seems like you're just you're looking into something that's already mm-hmm. been going on and you don't you mm-hmm. don't have the before and the after context for it but it seems like a very specific place of of that maybe I don't know maybe isn't for 21st century humans it's first like it's right creatures yeah. from another time yeah <laughs> yeah I do I really like it's 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 beguiling, isn't it, to think, mm-hmm. what are these guys doing? What yes. are they, is this paganism? What is this some kind of like proto-humanity? What, what is happening there? I find that really interesting about the, the meaning that we would layer on to these things. So mm. I'm, I'm really interested in things like carnival costume and ceremonial costumes with things like embroideries and bells on and masks and things like that and we all have them in our societies a lot of the time they're used I mean they can be used negatively for 
it's things like nationalistic nostalgia and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which yeah. doesn't necessarily always have good connotations. But we all of all of us have a propensity to want to know what stories they tell. So I find that really beguiling the uh-huh. way that you can layer on your own. And I do it myself when I'm making a piece. I a lot of the time won't really know what I'm why I'm putting something there, what I'm doing with this, why am I putting these two things together. But there's a narrative that you kind of start to make up as you go along. And you can you really buy into that narrative. And it's all from snatches of my own history or my own reading about archaeology and reading of landscape and things like that, reading of standing stones or just objects Mm. that have come through time to us. And it's really nice to know that other people will be looking at that, maybe putting their own ideas onto that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, kind of something sort of clicked when you were talking about archaeology and and that sort of thing too because I think that's a little bit what studying the past and studying art history feels like is mm-hmm. is you're seeing these pieces whether they're stones in the ground or mosaics or drawings on a cave wall or an mm-hmm. oil painting from the, the renaissance you do get that snapshot feeling of something taken across time and all you have is this little window and we will stare into it as long as we possibly can to try and learn more, right. try yeah. to connect more with the feeling in this place and these people. And I, I, there's definitely – that feeling comes up in, in some of your pieces for sure. I think it's there. Yeah. 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 I think it's it's nice. I like I like meeting people who feel the same way about – objects and and those and the secrets that they hold because not most people don't necessarily do that they might see the object and potentially think it's beautiful and potentially be quite wowed by how old it is the skills that the people that made it may have had but to actually I I did. It, it reminds me quite recently. I was I did a, an experimental drawing course in a town quite near here, and they have a museum where I live in the Mendip Hills. We have a lot of limestone caves, oh, and cool. for millennia, people have used them for various things: shelter and um, burying their dead. So we have mm-hmm. a lot of bone caves around here. Obviously, people buried with grave goods and things. And there's this amazing Neolithic vast jar that was made by the Beaker people that was buried as a grave with one of their dead in these caves. On this experimental drawing course, I had to draw this jar and trace the lines that the person that originally made it made in it. So they had cord that they'd twisted and then embedded in the clay as it was and they'd taken a sharp implement and then made lots of diagonals, so they were making triangles, straight lines down. And as I was drawing this, I realised that I was making the exact same hand movements that someone 4,000, 5,000 years ago had made, and considering the same things. 
was this triangle equal? How many lines go in between these thicker sets of lines? Mm. And it really blew my mind. I was just <sighs> so connected with that person in the past that I got chills. I felt quite emotional. Mm. Yeah. Um, because it was this connection with a person that I will never know. I have no idea what they're like. But we were connected in that we, were co- we had to consider how do we fill this space, this exact same space? Oh, God, yeah. And it was absolutely thrilling. Mm, yeah. So I really like things like that. And that's a mystery. That's a secret as well. But just to, there's stuff to be delved into there, which is just really exciting for me. I love things yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I completely understand it. it. And when you were speaking about how it's it's this sort of, it's one of these things in the world that some people are just lit up by and some people just they yeah. don't it leaves them cold. I when I was in graduate school, I was taking sort of extracurricular basically kind of tutoring around around writing because you have to write so much in graduate school for art history. Mm-hmm. You don't really get a lot of training on it, at least I didn't in my undergrad. And so I was working on this long form paper with my my tutor and we were talking about it and this and that. And it was all about dissecting the minute details of this print from the 16th century. And I just remember at the very end when we were finishing up after these weeks of working on it, if he just looked at me and he's like, whew. I don't, I don't know how you study these things. Like, <laughs> and it just, it really blew my mind because I was so excited about it that whole time. And I thought he was like right there with oh me. God. And it hadn't occurred to me that this could be boring to someone. It hadn't occurred to me that this kind of method of connecting with someone right. that was creating something 500 years ago couldn't light someone up in, in so I know yeah. isn't that heartbreaking as well when you just go oh you do not get it you do yeah. not get it guys but <laughs> you know I think there are people out there that do get it and that's how you find your tribe which mm-hmm. is just glorious when you do and and when you make art and people buy it and they say this means a lot to me or I really like what you do I really get it they're my people and yeah. so you when you find them yeah, which yeah. is really great. I'm hoping you can speak to a little bit the process of being self-taught in printmaking because I I know that a lot of people and I get a lot of messages from people actually through the Instagram that people just say, "What is this? How do I get started in this?" And sometimes it can be mm-hmm. kind of intimidating if they haven't if they don't want to go to university, if they don't live somewhere that offers community courses. What was your process like of deciding, okay, I want to make this manifest in the world. How did you go about teaching yourself to do it? Oh, I, yeah, I think there's, for me, there was a sort of a push me, pull you thing between absolute imposter syndrome, cluelessness, Mm -hmm. and also that going back to that sort of punk rock DIY ethic where I would eventually get quite annoyed at myself in the situation for not really just pulling my finger out and getting it done yeah so 
I um, I mean, we all know things like YouTube are so great and people on Instagram are so generous with their time and their information that they share. So I think there was a lot of Googling things, mm. um, watching what other people do and being a really good community. That's one of the things I would say is such a good thing on Instagram. I have some really good friends that we can talk a lot about issues and problems that we have. So it might be from getting our press to work properly because it's just not behaving itself one day to what kind of paper we're using. Actually, I really enjoyed the process of trial and error as well. And just thinking, so I don't have a professional printing press at all. I have a something a lot of people use, which is a cold laminating press. I don't actually know what cold laminating is. I've got no idea what it's used for. <laughs> but I bought one. It was quite cheap. And then I swapped. It comes with these rubber rollers. And I swapped the top roller out for a steel conveyor belt roller. So it's kind of a Frankenstein press. Mm-hmm. My husband is a furniture maker. So he actually made me a proper print bed for it because it was pretty ropey and tends to fall over a lot if you don't have kind of books either side to stabilize it as well so slowly it's becoming something really good but I've barely spent any money on it whatsoever and very much just tried things and had lots of failures and please don't get the idea that I've been gracious about those failures either (laughs) I have wanted to throw that thing out the window so many times but I'm so concerned that a, a one of the barriers to printmaking should not be the expense. Mm. And actually, I still make a lot of the prints just with a wooden spoon as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really keen that people don't have to feel like there's a huge barrier to entry with it. And just try, try a lot of things. Try all the papers. Mm-hmm. You don't have to get expensive papers I um and yeah, I get people asking a lot about the technique of carving detail um, and real tiny stuff. And my answer to them is always, you've just got to do it. You've just got to fill up a sheet of plywood or of lino with lots of mark making, mm. lots of practice. You've got to get a magnifying glass and a really good light and... You know, maybe some reading glasses if you're me because your eyes are going. But yeah, you just, you've just got to put those hours in. And there's so much information out there that you can really get a lot of help now. It reminds me of what you're saying about the putting the hours in. Something that was once said on the podcast that I think about all the time, which is that when you're getting started, you're going to have a lot of bad prints in you. And you just Ooh. have to get them out. Like it's just part of the process. And I've always loved that as a way of putting it because it really doesn't sort of moralize the learning process. It makes it sound so tangible and pragmatic. It's mm-hmm. just like, look, you're going to have some shit work in you. Just push it right. out of your system and, yeah. and that you're, you're going to have some mistakes in you. And it's just almost like a cleansing process to get to the good stuff that is inherently within everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, like kick back against that, get angry about the fact that you you can't afford to go to art school and have people teach you. You know, just do it and yeah, <laughs> keep doing it until you get a good print. I think nowadays that it, there's an issue with everything you make has to go online. Mm. And it has to be good, you know? It's got to be the Instagram perfection because it's got to get the likes and the follows and, and things like that. Yeah. So it's it's tough for people now because if you spend two weeks just perfecting your mark making, I mean, who's going to do that if they can't put it, put it out there and get some instant feedback? Because we all love that. It feels so good. We get that real dopamine hit. So, yeah, it's almost like you, you just have to force yourself just to say, I'm going to make terrible work, like you said. <laughs> they say they're withdrawing a lot as well, don't they? I read that recently because I'm not a good drawer. I've always drawn and I'm pretty terrible at it. But they say you really have to just get all your bad, bad stuff out. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. And just accept, just accept you got to, practice this stuff yeah yeah and uh, I definitely like what you said about that likes and the dopamine hits that you get from the likes and that being such an element now in a creative person who's putting their work in the world and do you find that you're guided by the likes can you separate yourself from from that that's something that I've heard printmakers talk about before although I don't think we've ever really discussed it directly on the podcast that idea of particularly when you're you're really still in the the formative years of your practice you're not someone who's four decades in and has their craft has their voice but in the in the 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 first time period of finding our way as a creative creator that you may make something that you really like, but you're like, oh, this got half as many likes as this other thing that I didn't like as much. And and trying to mm. either follow the likes, the algorithm, the voice of the public, or following yourself. What's your experience with that? I, th- I think you – as hard as it is, I think you have to really separate those things. And it's tough because then you spend a lot of energy on resisting that urge to put mm. things out there and also the, the pain because we all feel it, right? That pain when something you really like and it just flops yeah. and nothing. But it's such an odd thing. All, all of these apps, they work on very whimsical algorithms as well so mm-hmm. it's whilst it's so easy to spend that energy worrying you've got to remember as well that it's you're at the whim of an algorithm not how proficient you are at your art and mm. I think it's probably very damaging to people especially when starting out if you see your favorite people on Instagram and that's how you get into whichever kind of art you want to do you you want to be good at it straight away. And I think it's probably quite quite damaging if you then are putting stuff out there and really not getting much feedback at all. Mm. I believe it's harder now as well. Nowadays, I think people find it quite hard to get established on Instagram too. 
think there's lots of things where they want you to pay money to get your post seen and things yeah. like that. I find it very easy to switch off from all of that because I just find it so overwhelming as well. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy using something like Instagram, but I have to have maybe an arm's length between me and it. So I, d- I tend to sort of put something out there and then maybe don't check it for a long time until I've got a bit of distance between it. Because if I was at, at the whim of, of likes and comments and things like that, I I don't think I'd be able to handle it. Yeah. I think it would be really, really damaging for, for my art because it would make what I do not about what I do. Yeah. Which is just like one too many oxymorons to have in life. <laughs> absolutely yeah 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 and what you said about the uh, the algorithm I was texting with Ronaldo the co-host for the podcast the other day and he our our Instagram just got and surpassed 70,000 followers and we were talking about it and I said, well, the algorithm giveth and the algorithm taketh away. Oh, like, you, right, yeah. like you can't get wrapped up in it because it's so not related to merit and skill. It's just what, what the system is rewarding right now yeah. and what it's not. And something recently changed in the algorithm because for our Instagram, I was a, 58,000 for months, maybe half a year, just slowly like 57, 58, 59. And then something changed and we went from 60 to 72,000 probably in a month. And it oh. I haven't done anything better. I haven't been more active. I haven't been trying the new things, which is one of the things they say you should do. If Instagram comes out with a new feature, use it. They'll reward it. I haven't been doing anything different. And it truly feels like that whim of the gods kind of thing where right, now, yeah, now the, the now Instagram fairy came yeah <laughs> but it'll go away again and I'm sure something else will change and then I'll I'll stagnate at 75,000 for a year or more whatever it sure, is and yeah. it's it's not anything that you can really control and I think the more we can take that to heart and just say I'm putting this out into the world because I I want to see it in the world. That's the best place to come from. And that can be really hard because numbers are so hardcore affirmation. Look at you. You're good. 10,000 likes. <laughs> it's yeah. yeah. It's hard to to divorce one's need to be affirmed, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real democracy, without doubt. You, mm-hmm. it's almost, it's like, it's like being just waiting for to to happen to be doing all those right things at the right time, and then the algorithm to swing round to you and go, oh, you're actually ticking with this right now. If you change something one day, it could be the thing that you were doing previously that it switches to. So, I mean. Who can be at that sort of whim? You don't know the rules of the game. So although it is so hard, but I found that the best thing about Instagram is the community and yeah. the genuine friends that I've made 
online on Instagram. And I think what is really interesting to do is actually to use it to your benefit, but make steps to engage in your local art community as well. Because the minute I started doing that here in Somerset, we've got a really good art scene. There's lots of opportunities for people to show their work. So as soon as I started entering open calls for Mm. the local galleries, you suddenly become part of a network of local people who you will hear about more opportunities and competitions and community projects and things. And you can spend your time immersed in those kind of things, which is real life. And if you're looking to have your art as your career, you can literally sell through galleries and local markets and things like that. So it's, it's ticked, it ticks a lot of boxes in a lot of ways. And then you can do things like get a mailing list and encourage people to join that mailing list from your Instagram, mm. which is always such a positive way to connect with people who are a bit further afield as well. So it's really about being a bit crafty and using those online apps to really complement your art career rather than the other way around because that's what it is and that's what you're doing you're really just complementing being a product for whichever particular app you're on so snatch that back yeah yeah that's such a good point that's such a good point and and that it's being a a artist a working artist a self-promoting artist it's this really holistic thing where you need to really love it because you need to add something to your stories this week and then you need to go to a market and then you need to do an open call and then you need to be in the studio and it's mm. i think if you can if you can do it with joy all of it that that's that's the key right is 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 saying this is all part of the process and it all yeah. should be fun in its own way hopefully hopefully sure yeah yeah and just spread out those places where you get your validation from because mm. if you if you just hang in everything on instagram that ain't going to work for you it's going to slap you about and you feel real bad so yeah just yeah. don't do it yeah oh that's great what are you looking forward to what's on the horizon for you anything you want to shout out or so yeah, and then I've got a few projects on. I'm quite intrigued by maybe turning my work a little bit more 3D mm. and keeping this idea of sort of secrets to uncover. So I've got a project going at the moment where I'm making those, you know, those sort of uh, Victorian dioramas in a box and you would mm-hmm. look through a little peephole into them used to make them all the time when I was a kid. So I've, I'm trying to turn a lot of my lino cuts into maybe a little scene or some, some 3D work like that for an upcoming exhibition. So we'll see how that turns out. Oh, can we, can we stay tuned on Instagram for that? Do you think that they'll be yeah. showing up? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, they'll be all over my Instagram, including my failures when I sort of drill through the box in the wrong way or something, yeah. Wonderful. Well, and then where can people find you and follow you and see your work? 
so I'm on the aforementioned evil Instagram mm-hmm. as Gemma Tricky Studio, Tricky with an EY, and my website is GemmaTricky.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Gemma, for this conversation. It was really fun, really delightful, and I was thinking it would be. I was hoping it would be because that's how I find your work. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Ron. It's been an absolute delight and a pleasure. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Melanie Yazzie. Melanie is Diné artist and beloved professor of printmaking at the University of Colorado Boulder. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Oh,